Welcome back to Measure Twice. In the previous episode, we looked at the manufacturing process of ADMs. This time, let's talk about specifics. As before, I'll use the term ADM and skin substitute a bit interchangeably. And hopefully it will be clear from the context when the product is being used on the skin or when, for example, it is used for support internally. Because remember, skin substitute, quote unquote, is a very loose term. Skin has a form and function, like anything in plastic surgery. And functions of the skin include thermoregulation, endocrine, sensations, immunity, UV protection, sebum production, among other things. So you see, we are not substituting skin, more like we are getting structural integrity, continuity of the surface, protection against ingress of microorganisms, but not necessarily all the functions of the skin. Of course, if we use the product internally, as for example, in breast reconstruction, we literally want it just to give us the structural support. So theoretically, at least, we are demanding less from that particular biomaterial. But as we'll see shortly, that is easier said than done. Hello and welcome to Measure Twice, the podcast for professionals in plastic surgery. I am your host, Mubishir Chima, and I am super excited to bring you this podcast. But first, a disclaimer. This is a professional podcast and not intended for general public. It presupposes a significant depth of knowledge, contains a lot of medical and surgical jargon, and all these things make it an unsuitable source of information for patients. If you are a patient or member of general public, any comments made here do not replace the judgment after careful assessment by a qualified medical practitioner. And any such comments or observations do not make you an expert in the field. Please avoid self-diagnosis by internet search engines. At this point, originally, I wanted to go through some of the ADMs and relevant details. But I think it probably makes more sense to expand on these limitations. Because any amount of reps will tell you about their given product. And you probably already have experience in some. But where do we go from here? And if we understand the limitations of the current products, hopefully that helps us guide further research. So first of all is the barrier function for products used externally and support function for products used internally. For an effective external barrier, we know that we need keratinocytes from the epidermis, a dermoepidermal junction, i.e. a basement membrane, below which is a supporting collagen layer of dermis, and ideally further padding as well. When we take a skin graft, we get an epidermis, the junction, and a variable amount of dermis. There is a well-known process of graft take whereby capillaries from the recipient bed link up with those in the graft. And until that happens, the graft stays alive partly by diffusion, partly by dropping its metabolic rate, and partly by, well, we have no idea how. In order to achieve that with synthetic products, the simplest thing we've used are cultured 
epithelial keratinocytes. If you've seen them, they come as a small syringe full of clear liquid with the nozzle to generate an aerosol to be sprayed on. Of course, these are just keratinocytes, so only give an epidermal layer. If the environment is suitable, they'll multiply, migrate by loss of contact inhibition until there is a thin layer of keratinocytes on the surface. Assuming the surface is suitable, can provide nutrients and protection from drying out. You still get a thin layer of keratinocytes. So even places who do use it would more likely spray these cultured keratinocytes on top of, for example, a widely meshed craft. So they serve a purpose, but only that small purpose. Plus the cost of having a laboratory, technicians, equipment, etc., just adds to it. The other thing we seem to be missing in these substitutes is axial blood supply. Sure, there is vascularization in these dermal matrices, but that is more like the vascularity in healing by second intent, i.e. capillaries or small vessels, which are short, haphazardly arranged and of very small caliber. And it is this caliber which is going to determine the intraluminal pressure. And as this intraluminal pressure drops along the length of this already very fine tube, at some stage, the Stalling equilibrium becomes unfavorable for exchange of substrates. And the thickness of tissues corresponding to that length of the capillary is the maximum tissue thickness that you would hope to achieve, plus a bit more uh, with diffusion. Luckily, in burns and plastic surgery, that thickness is enough to give us an acceptable level of cover with skin grafts in most areas of skin, except maybe palms or soles. But this blood supply argument is mighty important when we are talking about non-skin tissues in the context, for example, of making artificial organs, either by decellularization or by bioprinting. I hope to talk about that separately in the coming months, so let us for now focus onto skin. Okay, so now we have an epidermis, some sort of blood supply, and a variety of options as a replacement for dermis. Unfortunately, that still does not mean that we have an effective substitute for the whole skin we are still missing some very important functions. For a small surface area, this may not be very important, but in patients with large skin defects, precisely the ideal candidates for quote-unquote skin substitutes because they do not have enough native skin. It is in those patients that we want a product which can provide as much of the native skin functions. One important function is of sweat glands. Allegedly a simple tubular structure which courses through dermis and epidermis to lubricate or moisturize the skin surface. The current ADMs are unable to reliably recreate these. There have been some preclinical studies with varied amount of success. Of course using stem cells is quite fashionable these days as well. But you can't just sprinkle these stem cells and expect them to make any arbitrary tissue. 
Imagine a three-dimensional piece of tissue with keratinocytes, fibroblasts, endothelial cells, all trying to grow. And then these stem cells suddenly turn up and say, okay, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to make? How would the existing cells know? From this thought process, you'd expect that we'd need to have some starter material, a cytokine or something else, in that dermal matrix, which the stem cells can recognize as their clue to start making sweat gland components. Personally, I think we are still probing this problem at a very coarse level, and that we need the technological leaps to achieve more fine grain control over the whole process. Probably, with specific growth factors, programmable gene editing, where you specify a betting order for different genes to express themselves in succession, thereby allowing much more nuanced control of the microenvironment. But we'll still continue. We also have hair follicles missing in any given ADM. This is a lesser evil because you can probably transplant those as well, as long as there is some donor site of similar looking hair. Coming to sensations. While firm pressure, etc., may be sensed through structures deeper to the ADM, nerve endings have also been shown to grow in the dermal matrix. It is debatable, however, as to how much sensations they provide as compared to natural skin. The amount of literature seems to be very small, or maybe I'm just searching for the wrong keywords on PubMed. There is a 2011 paper from Perth, uh, which says there is no reinnervation in burns patients managed with Integra. And another one from Philadelphia in 2013, that Integra on fingertips does allow some protective sensation. For the second paper, their average static two-point discrimination was 9.6 millimeters on Integra versus 4.6 millimeter on contralateral unaffected side. But there were nine patients in this study and five in the previous one. So surely there has to be more data around. Though I suspect there may be an element of silo thinking. In that the burn surgeons, the more prolific ADM users probably use the Vancouver, the Manchester, or the POSA scales, where sensations are a categorical variable. However, the more objective, numerical, quantitative scales like two-point discrimination, Sims-Weinstein tests, etc., are more a playground of hand surgeons, who tend not to use the ADMs, at least in that quantity. And if that isn't a somber enough thought, there is the question of pigmentation. While cultured keratinocytes may contain some melanocytes who just piggyback in the retrieval process, ADMs do not have many melanocytes growing in them. A split skin graft over them may carry some melanocytes and provide pigmentation, but not otherwise, which means that we do need to worry about UV protection and everything that comes with it. As life would have it, a lot of countries with good sunlight are too poor to afford ADMs. And any cold-hearted business case by the industry won't necessarily prioritize selling them there either.
So there's a conundrum for you. For the literature section, I am aware that the last episodes were quite PRS heavy. So this month I'm trying to diversify. That does mean that I have to hop, skip and jump probably through some excellent papers. But please bear with me. I am adjusting it as I go. What you might call the Millard's cut as you go technique applied to podcasting. Who would have thought? So PRS's breast section has a clinical study about revascularization of NAC following nipple sparing mastectomy. Senior authored by Maurice Nahabedian and Claudio Engrigiani, both prolific writers. In past, Nahabedian has written about implant-based prepectoral reconstruction, acellular dermal matrices, autologous breast reconstruction, and been part of many consensus and expert panels. If that still does not sound familiar, maybe you remember the classification of muscle sparing trams, MS0, where no muscle is spared, that is, it is a free tram flap, MS1, where you spare some muscle is saved lateral to the perforator, MS2, where you save most of the lateral and medial muscle in relation to the perforator, and MS3, where you save every bit of the muscle, i.e. a DF flap. That classification comes from Nahabedian. Similarly, Engrigiani has published prolifically uh, about free tissue transfers reconstruction in head and neck, breast, as well as limbs. In this study, published uh, February uh, 2023, they looked at 15 patients who underwent a total of 25 nipple sparing mastectomies, either prophylactic or therapeutic. All of them had pre-op imaging with MRI and Doppler ultrasound. The fifth anterior intercostal artery perforator was the one blood supply before and after the nipple sparing mastectomy, which was present in all cases. Clinically, all nipples survived. So the authors surmise that this is the dominant blood supply for the NAC, certainly after the mastectomy. There is the paper about smooth surface anatomical implants with fixation system. So one bit of revelation for me uh, in the recent weeks has been that Motiva have moved away from calling their implants as nanotextured and instead use the term smooth implants. This I think is both an acknowledgement of reality because well let's be honest the criteria for calling them nanotextured was developed retrospectively as well as it is a marketing decision due to all the emotive conversations about implant texturing. And if you want to hear emotive comments about it, I suggest you read the letters to editor section of ASJ uh, from February this year. The other thing about these implants with fixation devices is that to my knowledge, they are made to specific orders and therefore can take a few weeks and that there is no stock sitting on the shelf which tells us a few things. But let's turn back to the question about smooth versus nanotexturing. Because just this month, in February, Joao Barnia's team from Tel Aviv have published about five years experience of Mativa ergonomics and called them nanosurface. So we are in a situation where Mativa website says, Trufix 
and ergonomics are smooth surface, silk surface, but we have one study referring to them as smooth and the other as nanotextured. So watch this space. Staying with ASJ, the US Food and Drug Administration in October 2021 mandated a patient decision checklist for all breast implant manufacturers. The idea is very simple and commendable that patients should have all the information they need based on pre-market approval studies to make their decision about breast augmentation or any procedure to do with breast implants. Sounds amazing. Until you notice that a typical patient checklist document, and each manufacturer has its own version, has nine places for the patient to initial and two places where both patient and the surgeon have to sign. Now, how many people are going to read it and then understand it? Not just the patients, but how many surgeons? Well, in this survey, more than 58% respondents thought that this patient checklist mandated by FDA is not a fair or balanced document and that only a small number of surgeons have actually made it to work seamlessly in their practice. I think this shows the disconnect between two opposing viewpoints of the innovators and the regulators. Currently, there is a wide gulf between those who want to get on with things and those who want to ensure due process. The one side is inventing aeroplanes and the other side is inventing parachutes. Speaking of which, the Dutch are at it again, exploring breast implant illness. The team from Maastricht surveys aesthetic augmentation patients for psychological symptoms and found increased rate of extroversion and social desirability as well as neuroticism for the patients who seek aesthetic breast augmentation. One study that probably demands a very detailed explanation is from Brown University looking at growth regulation of BIA-ALCL. We all know that it expresses CD30. The authors, Kaden et al., detected CD30 in BIA-ALCL cell lines and noted the effect on various cell signaling pathways. They found that uh, CD30 is essential for a certain protein kinase, which is one possible therapeutic goal, but also that tumor cell viability was decreased by knocking off CD30 and by inhibiting a certain gene called STAT6. The details will take us into the gory details of cell signaling pathways, so better left for later and probably best delivered piecemeal. Looking away from breast surgery, Oxford University Hospital have published their 12-year review of combined orthopedic and plastic surgery treatment of open lower limb fractures. The management was compared against the BOST-4 guidelines. BOST stands for British Orthopedic Association Standards for Trauma and is a large set of standards of practice for various trauma and elective orthopedic procedures. BOST number four specifically deals with open fractures of lower limbs. You know, things like start antibiotics as soon as possible until wound debridement, that wound debridement should be combined orthopedic and plastic surgery, senior surgeons, certainly to be done within 24 hours, 
sometimes faster if there is high risk. Give coimoxiclav and gentamicin on induction and for 72 hours or until definitive closure. That definitive cover ideally should be within 72 hours, but certainly uh, within seven days. And how to handle suspected vascular injury, etc. Those make up the BOST4 guidelines. Back to the paper. Uh, and I'm presuming that there is a typo in the patients and methods section, which says December 16 to December 18. It probably is December 2006 to December 2018 that the patient data was collected. So in total, there were 61 patients, mostly men, mostly Gastelo 3B, and mostly from falls and RTCs. Notably, two-thirds complied with the BOST-4 guidelines, and of the other third that breached the BOST-4 guidelines, 25% breached 24-hour window for stabilization, and 75% breached the 72-hour window for definitive cover. The rate of deep infection was 2% in those who complied with the guidelines and 16% in those who breached. You have to appreciate that the actual numbers are low, so confidence interval would be quite wide. However, even with that caveat, there was a good correlation between short time to soft tissue coverage and the decreased risk of deep infection. Because if I can take you back, a slightly different slant was used 2017 paper in JPROS by Domenico Tigani, Mozam Tharer, and Umraz Khan, who instead compared risk of deep infection after orthoplastic versus orthopedic only treatment of open lower limb fractures. It was a three center study, one center using orthoplastic approach in UK, another using orthoplastic approach in Pakistan, and one center using orthopedic approach in Italy. The rate of deep infection in UK with the orthoplastic approach was around 12% and that in Italy with orthopedic only approach was 32%. The data from Pakistan using the orthoplastic approach showed a deep infection rate of around 22%. And this is the cracker. Because in the developing world, a patient would not arrive directly at the trauma or a tertiary care center. And they would almost always breach the 24 hour window. But we can still see that even a delayed orthoplastic approach is better than none. Their data was not stratified, as has been the Oxford data, so it cannot be directly compared. But at least it gives you an understanding of uh, how important it is to debride and stabilize and aim to fix as a combined orthoplastic approach as soon as possible. The standard orthoplastic approach to open lower limb fractures uses the well-known fix and flap strategy and as we have just heard uh, has better results than the alternative of what you may call fix and suction and even better results if done quick enough and of course the reason is that you need to prevent microbial contamination and it is easy to prevent it if you miss that window 24 hours or 72 hours the outcome is demonstrably worse off that is why we fix and flap because flaps are the best option to cover and close a wound from exterior. Although, we have been talking about ADMs too. Now, at this moment, I can see that half of you will have a light bulb moment and go, aha, and the other half will be frantically looking for a pitchfork and a flame torch. So do not let me give you an opinion. 
there is a paper published in February 23 in Annals of Plastic Surgery, a small study from Daejeon in South Korea. Over a two-year period, they had 48 patients with open lower limb fractures. And for whatever reason, 14 of them, 1-4, ended up with exposed metalwork. I would personally prefer to know exactly how and why, but let's go with it. From what I can understand of their methods is that they did wash out applied metriderm, which is bovine collagen and a millimeter thick. So wash out metriderm and negative pressure dressing. And remember, this is not a primary procedure. It is after the failure of primary coverage. So wash out metriderm and negative pressure dressing. Followed by regular washout, change of negative pressure dressing twice a week until the margin of metalwork was covered in granulation and at least half of the metalwork was covered in granulation because obviously granulation wouldn't cover all of the hardware. And at that stage, they applied another layer of metriderm, skin graft and negative pressure dressing. And six of the 14 patients had wounds more than 10 centimeter. And the maximum size of exposed metalwork was five centimeter by three and a half centimeter. On average, they needed 6.7 changes of negative pressure dressing over 24 and a half days. There is no data on long-term infection rate, which I think would be very crucial. But in their defense, I suppose the patients are from 2019 to 2021, and the paper was received for publication in October 22. So hopefully there would be an update soon. Interesting as this small study from South Korea sounds, I wouldn't rush into adopter just yet. I would still need to know the long-term infection rate, the metal re-exposure rate, larger numbers with different teams for reproducibility of results. And for those thinking, hey, I can use the BTM. Well, we'll talk about it next time. Until then, put down your pitchforks and snuff out those torches.